Welcome to River Life Podcasts. We're a church family embracing the Father's presence, releasing empowered people to declare and demonstrate Christ's kingdom. We trust that God would use what you hear today to bless and grow you so that you would be a blessing to those around you. For more information about River Life Baptist Church, go to riverlifechurch.org.au or find us on social media. select amount here mm. um, it makes it pretty clear that he's he's gone through carefully perhaps yeah. even um, the the synoptic gospels perhaps he's even had a look at those documents himself and yeah. gone um, I'm going to pick this sign I'm going to pick this miracle I'm going to pick these ones I've picked these seven deliberately mm. and I'm going to use each of them to prove a point about Jesus's divinity um, yeah. in, in some way how he will see some of them he um, recapitulates the Old Testament law or fulfills the yeah. law or um, and something like that. So the signs and the miracles, because there's only seven of them, they are chosen carefully and That's arranged right. carefully um, to, to prove a point. Welcome to River Life's Bible Streams podcast. This is a podcast all about the Bible, digging deep into understanding God's Word to us and how it can apply to our lives. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here at River Life Baptist Church. I'm joined by the fabulous Alex Walker. Hello. Uh, currently working hard on his thesis for his master's. Carved out some yep. time to come spend talking about the Bible because he loves it. Yep. Welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you. I would happily have out time to talk about the Bible. It's all good. Come on. Uh, it's been a little while since we've been on. We've had a bit of a break, but we're back. Um, how have you been? Everything going well for you? Absolutely. Just busy, like you said, digging into Ezekiel and Exodus, and that has pretty much been my life. No, we're not looking at either of those today. So no. Not so helpful. <laughs> but it's a nice break. That's true. We are going to look at uh, the Gospel of John today. This is our last episode in our series. We've been looking at the Gospels, and so um, really good opportunity to kind of wrap that up to see this pretty interesting and very different gospel. Uh, we're going to look at who this John was that wrote this gospel. Um, was it John or another man of the same name? Uh, what did he put into this? Why is it different to Matthew, Mark and Luke's gospels? And some of the interesting kind of patterns that we can pick up in there. There's a whole lot to do. There's a whole lot to learn about. Uh, and my hope is that as you hear us talk about this, it's going to intrigue you a little. It's going to invite you a little. Some of the mystery and some of the hiddenness and the um, pretty consistent ambiguities that John uses will uh, intrigue you and you can go searching in this gospel for yourself. So uh, without any further ado, let's jump in to the gospel of John. John's Gospel, uh, sometimes called the Fourth Gospel, uh, sometimes unhelpfully called the Fourth Gospel because unless you know they come in the order of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you don't know which one to look up. Yep. <laughs> um, but interesting called the Fourth Gospel because it kind of 
raises that question straight away around authorship. So um, generally, who the general consensus, who we think is the author? John. John, thanks. <laughs> Which one? John the Apostle, the beloved disciple. Yes. Which we assume same. the same thing, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, that's one of the features of this gospel, the fourth gospel, is um, this beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loves who kind of gets um, – Kind of like this really kind of subtle top billing, right? Like, well, I'm not sure how subtle it is. Well, it's, 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 it kind of just by the end of it, you're like, who is this guy? Yeah. Like he's humble with air quotes. If you could see me, I'm doing air quotes. Humble in that he doesn't use his own name yep. or a name, but he's the one who sits next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He's the one who beats Peter to the tomb in a foot race Classic on the foot resurrection race, yeah. morning. Uh, so, you know, someone, uh, we, yeah, so tradition is that the disciple that Jesus loved was John. The, the disciple. Mm-hmm. There are a few other Johns possibly floating around. It was potentially a common name, but there's a few other Johns in the the Bible that we know about um, that may all be the same John, but historically may be different. So there's another John referred to as John the Elder. So um, some of the, the second and third generation Christian writers referred to a John the Elder who was a different John to the John, who was the apostle, who did some of the writings attributed to John in the scripture, which is super <laughs> helpful. It's so ambiguous. Uh, so that might mean that John the apostle didn't do any writing, uh, but another John wrote down things that happened, uh, which may or may not be John of Patmos, who was attributed to writing the the revelation of John of Jesus Christ. Yep. So, uh, and that might be a different person again to the person who wrote the letters, first, second, and third John. So we potentially have three or four different Johns, or we potentially have one John. One, one John. Yeah, not first John, but one John. Yeah. One, one John. <laughs> so, um, essentially, the gospel itself suggests that it's someone who was with Jesus, who was an eyewitness, who was one of his closest followers, which then becomes John, the son of Zebedee, who's mentioned throughout all of the the, the gospels, all four of the gospels. So, at this point in time, a few thousand years on. It's easiest just to say it was written by John and leave it at that. But it's actually quite helpful because when we start to read the fourth gospel, it's full of ambiguities. And so it seems fitting that we don't know which John wrote it because the whole way through, there's just ambiguity after ambiguity. There's, uh, In fact, in some of the research I was doing in reading this, the gospel genre that we think that this book fits into, um, because this is a different kind of gospel to the other three gospels we have the others are called the synoptics because they give this kind of overview of jesus's life this one's very different um people were kind of wrestling with well what kind of genre is it is it just gospel because if it's a gospel genre that's unhelpful because Mm. it's unique and the genre helps us understand how to read it and if it's unique it doesn't give us any tips on how to read it it's like (laughs) here it's this completely standalone thing you work it out like that's not helpful um, so they're trying to wrestle. Is it like a Greek kind of oratory? Is it something that would happen? Because there's, as we'll see later on, there's a lot of Jesus standing up and giving messages, the seven discourses. Discourses. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so is it like that? But then if you're doing a rhetorical speech, it's supposed to be very clear. There's not supposed to be ambiguity. And all we get pretty much in John is ambiguity. Yep. Um, so I think the the thing that caught me in the ambiguity was um, I remember having a lecture uh, at Bible college and – Throughout particularly the the prologue, the first part of John's gospel, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so this word we assume is Jesus, this logos. Um, But then that is also translated, scripture is also logos. And so as we're kind of wrestling with this 
wrestling with this idea of all of these different meanings of the word. I asked my lecturer kind of as a new Bible college student, <laughs> so which one do you think the author is meaning here? And he said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> all of them. You can't make a call on that. Yeah. Well, like, how is that going to help me in understanding how to write about this? And he's like, it's not. I'm like, so how do I get it correct? And he's like, you may not. Just have a go. I'm like, that is not helpful at any level. But this is the challenge of reading John, right? Exactly, yeah. And it, and it pops up all throughout the book. Um, and in the in the Old Testament as well, you, ambiguity was often used as a way to um, mystify the presence mm. or, or mystify um, like the full revelation of God from the Israelites. Um, and I think that in some ways ties into um, the theme of John, not mm. not to hold Jesus back in his full revelation from the audience, but because as opposed to the very human Jesus of the synoptics in John, you get a very transcendent, glorified Jesus. Mm. So it makes sense that he'd be betrayed. You know, he's otherworldly. So yeah. some ambiguity is probably necessary because yeah. we're, we're, we're not from heaven. We're yeah. from earth. So. We can't fully understand yeah, him. We so can't fully understand why him. Why try? So, yeah. why, well, why pretend that we can? Yeah, exactly. We should try, but yeah. And maybe John was just doing his best and yeah. he couldn't quite get there. This is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, smart Alec Luke. He thinks he yeah. can just put it all down because he's a doctor. Yeah. Uh, but I suppose, do you think that's why, particularly even in the Old Testament portrayal of God, they even use, like, they don't even use his name. They use... Yahweh or those four consonants just to represent him. Is that part of that ambiguity? Yeah, absolutely. It comes into so many things in, in the name theology, like you said, with Yahweh, um, in, in his, the way God appears to the Israelites in, in theophany and his presence is often the same. Like you think of the glory cloud of the tabernacle mm-hmm. or, um, the storm theophanies of Job and Sinai. Um, God often uses an element of nature to somewhat cloud his, like, absolute manifest presence um, to kind of both protect his, you know, holiness from being degraded by the Israelites and also to protect them from coming into contact with the holy when they're unclean, which would would kill them. So you often get like a cloud or even the fire and sometimes like that. And you see the most intense moments of divine presence in the Old Testament are when God appears as or in the likeness of a man. And he's not shrouded by that. So you think of the three visitors to Abraham or... Um, God on his throne to Ezekiel. Mm. Um, but even then he's surrounded by storms and, and yeah. fire and oh, stuff Daniel, like that. Like yeah, it's the exactly the same in Daniel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's often like an element of the you can see the manifest divine presence right there, but it's also a little bit held yeah. back. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the ambiguity definitely serves mm. to protect God's holy, holiness. And I think that, so, yeah, make that makes sense too when we come to John's gospel yeah. because like if we take that Hebrews 1 passage that you know, in the past God spoke through many ways, Storms, clouds, prophets, kings, yep. all of that, uh, but speaks most fully in Jesus, who is his exact likeness, the bearer of his being. Um, and so, of course, there's going to be ambiguity around that. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. So that is quite different then to the Synoptic Gospels. I think one of those kind of traditional images of John's Gospel is of the eagle of the kind of you know soaring, mm-hmm. rising high above everything else, kind of indicative partly of glory of the glory of God, partly of the kind of the height of it. The uh, it's been called the most mystical gospel it's mm. like uh the early church fathers called it the spiritual gospel as opposed to the others which is again a bit of a slag off of the <laughs> yeah. others like it's all spiritual come poor on word choice isn't yeah, it yeah. <laughs> i think oregon called it the spiritual gospel <laughs> it's like oh come on uh but yeah so it does definitely kind of separate itself out from the synoptics um in, in a couple of particular ways i think 
Yeah, absolutely. The synoptics, I think we must have talked about this ages ago now yeah. in the introductory episode, but the synoptics are your horizontal gospels where yeah. um, the, the plane is horizontal. Jesus is, you know, on par with man in the sense that he's come and he's depicted in very human form um, to get that aspect of his nature. And then John departs from that tradition, traditionally dated a little bit later mm. um, than the three synoptics. And it's more of a vertical gospel where um, the focus is very much so on the connection between heaven and earth and a more transcendent, mystical, mm. spiritual Jesus than the synoptics. Like even in the birth stories, you'll see that um, Matthew, Mark, Luke and their versions of Jesus' birth, it's always an earthly birth. And then mm. we'll see when we get to the prologue in John, it's a, you know, it's a descending from heaven in the, the beginning, spiritual, spiritual mm. birth. Um, that's the birth story that comes in there. It also um, basically following kind of the the scene in Cana at the wedding. Uh, after that, it kind of doesn't follow any chronological yeah. sense up until basically the crucifixion. Yeah, uh, and so John's gospel is different in that it's not tracing the life of Jesus chronologically. Like almost straight out of the gate, we find ourselves pretty much in the Passion Week kind of discussing things in Jerusalem with the people who are already pretty upset with Jesus. It's actually kind of, if you're trying to work out how his life flowed, you're not going to get it from John's no. gospel at all. He's putting together a very different presentation of Jesus. Yeah. You'd go to Mark for something like yes, that. You yeah. wouldn't, you wouldn't choose John and everything about John is designed to show that Jesus is God. Yeah. That they are one and the same. Like we'll see with the seven I am statements, the seven discourses, the seven signs, they're all designed and um, put placed strategically within the gospel, like you said, not necessarily in chronological order, in order to depict that Jesus is um, one and the same as Yahweh, who's in the heavens. Mm. Yeah. Well, so that's a good time to talk about the purpose, like why the the gospel of John was written. Uh, the simplest answer to that question is actually in there because the author very helpfully told us why he wrote it. I love it when that <laughs> happens. Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. See, he left stuff out. Oh. Um, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's not just like Luke that you might understand the events of Jesus's life, but there's also this invitation to belief, which again plays into John's very spiritual kind of, you know, mystical, yeah. otherworldly. Like this isn't just information. This isn't just the presentation of Jesus. This is an invitation from God. Yeah. And that little um, mission statement of the gospel there where John talks about Jesus performed many other signs, but you know, I've only recorded a select amount here. Mm. Um, it makes it pretty clear that he's he's gone through carefully. Perhaps yeah. even um, the the synoptic gospels. Perhaps he's even had a look at those documents himself and yeah. gone. Um, I'm going to pick this sign. I'm going to pick this miracle. I'm going to pick these ones. I've picked these seven deliberately, mm. and I'm going to use each of them to prove a point about Jesus's divinity. Um, yeah. In in some way, how he will see some of them. He. Um, recapitulates the Old Testament law or fulfills the yeah. law or um, something like that. So the signs and the miracles, because there's only seven of them, they are chosen carefully and exactly arranged right. carefully um, to to prove a point. Or or are there seven? We'll get to dun, that. Dun. Uh, <laughs> well, but that also raises the interesting discussion um, of which I couldn't find an answer <laughs> around uh, did the author of the fourth gospel draw on the other three for some inspiration because uh, as one commentator very helpfully said, if you take away all of the 
the messages, the discourses, like Jesus standing up and speaking, if you take them out, You're not left with much there's shame. not a lot. It's a pretty basic kind of map of you know, a few events. And so there's kind of this impression from many scholars and some of it I think is scholarly research and some of it is an excuse for writing a PhD. Um, <laughs> but some say that um, the writer probably drew on Luke's gospel. Others say they probably used Mark. Like you said, you know, if you want to just know the structure, just use Mark's gospel. Uh, some others possibly say that they drew, uh, the author drew on the source Q, which if you remember back, that's the uh, other source of writings which aren't found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, uh, or John. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's this, there's some level of kind of probable influence because it, it's quite improbable that in that first hundred years or so of the Christian movement growing that, uh, as it's referred to, Johannine uh, Christianity grew up in complete isolation from the other gospel yeah. sources. So there would have been some connection given that people moved a lot, people traveled around, there's a lot of communication. So there's going to be at least like collections of sayings of Jesus, if not actual notes and records of what he said, yeah. uh, which is an interesting thing I learned in researching this one was uh, one of the commentaries I read had this very long section on these discourses that these kind of messages of Jesus that are in John's gospel and saying, talking about how, you know, the oral tradition, which we've talked about before, how effective that was, how accurate that was. Um, but also I didn't realize there was quite a culture of note taking in the ancient world, which, uh, I kind of I was really impressed. Uh, there's quite substantial record of students of teachers taking notes yeah. um, up to like 500 years prior to Jesus. So it was quite commonplace. In fact, I read, there was one humorous anecdote, as, as humorous <laughs> as anecdotes get when you're reading about the ancient world, where one um, ancient scholar who, whose name escapes me, it wasn't a familiar one to me, um, they had gone on the public record saying there's a few books floating around with my name on it. They were actually just notes taken from my lectures by some of my overzealous students <laughs> and published under my name. And if I was ever actually writing these as a book, I would have done a much better job of it. These are very offhand remarks. So please, you know, it was me, but don't take it as my writings. Yeah. So like, you know, people were being misrepresented in the media yep. like two and a half thousand years ago. You know, it happens. <laughs> That's also a very relevant anecdote for the rest of the New Testament as well because, and even in our previous discussion of the authorship of John, because uh, it was very common practice for a group of disciples of a particular teacher or rabbi or preacher or famed person or even someone who just wanted to get their name out there to adopt the name or to utilize the name of yeah, yeah. the person they served under. Um, and they would, you know, publish writings mm. under the name Paul, for example, mm. even though they physically weren't Paul. Paul. Yeah. And like their ideas are probably very similar to Paul's, mm. but on the occasion they get it wrong, such mm. as in this story, you can un end up with a few problems. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it does present the challenge, which um, I think for some people it's not a challenge and it probably needs to be a little higher on their thinking. Yep. And for other people, it's a huge stumbling block, which means they just disengage entirely. But we can't come to a document like the fourth gospel naively thinking someone had a tape recorder jotted down word for word everything that Jesus said exactly. and is representing it here. Um, like I said, notes could be taken, oral history and traditions. There was sayings that were moving through the early church which predate anything written down. We know from some of Paul's writings he kind of alludes to creeds and sayings and um, kind of almost like songs and hymns that were common in the Christian church prior to um, some of this stuff being written down. So – the, the presentation of Jesus' words may not actually be 
100% what he said but is a representation of what he was intending and is also kind of carefully curated by the author to present yep. the sign and its understanding to the people who are reading it. So, yeah, which can be quite challenging for people. We go, oh, hang on. Well, did Jesus really say that? Um, one of the beautiful parts of John's gospel is that on Jesus's lips, in fact, in chapter 14 and in part of that, the, the last big discourse, he talks about the Holy Spirit will come and he'll take everything I've said and declare it to you. So in the paradigm of the, the authorship of John, um, the author is relying heavily on the work of the Holy Spirit to remind and to prompt uh, the important things that Jesus said or communicated, which are sometimes two different things, uh, to the people who needed to hear it. Yeah. And we, we have to trust at the ultimate end of the day that God, Yahweh, is the ultimate divine author of Scripture mm. in that he used human vessels like whichever John wrote this, like whether Paul did or did not write Ephesians and Colossians, which one is which. Like It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter who you, God used to write that gospel. Well, it does, but um, we have to trust that he's yeah. shaped the formation of the canon and the writing in its first instance into what we have today and that if it's in there, it's because God wanted it in there. And maybe the discussion of inspiration of scripture is still one we should have at some point. Yeah, we do need I think to do it's that. A good one. I think it's a great discussion. Okay, there's a few other things I want to jump onto before we jump into uh, just going through uh, the text of John. Not not too deeply, but uh, I suppose if I give you the outline, you'll know what's coming up. So John's gospel is kind of chopped up into kind of three or four big sections uh, kind of an intro and an outro. There's the the prologue, fancy name for introduction. It kind of sets the scene. Uh, and as we'll find out in a moment, kind of sets all the themes of what's going to be covered. Then there's um, what some people, what um, Mike Bird and N.T. Wright refer to as the book of signs, which picks up in chapter 1, verse 19, and goes right through to the end of chapter 12, which is Jesus performing signs and explaining his signs, um, which we'll walk through in a bit. And then from chapter 13 to the end of chapter 20, which covers basically somewhere between a three or four day kind of period, depending on how you do the math, from the the meal the Last Supper, which maybe have been the Passover or the night before the Passover, uh, through to the resurrection. And that's the book of glory, they term it, which is beautiful. And then there's this one chapter epilogue at the end, which kind of sense, you can read it and sense that maybe this was added a little bit later on. It's kind of a, a postscript, which kind of helps contextualize the author maybe and the journey that uh, the author or at least the disciples went on after the resurrection. So that's kind of the outline really. Yep. So uh, a couple other things that are in just interesting to note before we jump in. Um, patterns. Patterns in John's gospel are yes. very interesting. There's a lot. There's lots of different yes. um, <laughs> numbers, in, in fact, are the interesting things. Uh, there's a whole lot of threes in John's gospel. Uh, and if you read it, you'll find them. You'll look for them. So um, Jesus is like, – there's three denials of Jesus in there. Mm -hmm. There's three Passovers. You know, three Passovers celebrated. Yep. Um, Jesus utters three things from the cross. Yep. So there's all sorts of threes. Look for the threes as you go. And also there's lots of sevens. Yes, seven discourses, seven signs, seven I am statements. Yes. There's probably some more sevens probably in there. More sevens we'll here. Find. <laughs> but obviously both of those numbers in Jewish Hebrew culture represent perfection, full unity, mm. the completion, yeah, creation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that 
the author really loves to do is create really strong contrasts all the time. There's this, this constant kind of playing off of darkness and light. You'll see it right from the start. It's kind of like uh, Jesus versus the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders uh, constantly going on. There's like love and hate happening everywhere. It's like all of this really sharply contrasted, which again speaks to the fact that the author has kind of curated this, put it together very carefully as a very strong uh, argument really for who Jesus is. And the biggest theme that comes out is that, yeah, like you said before, Jesus is God and you need to get your head around this. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's kind of, I think all the introductory stuff we need to cover, I think we can probably jump in and start to kind of unpack uh, a little bit more of the fourth gospel. So we come to the first verse of John's Gospel, uh, the first verse of the prologue, uh, fairly well-known verse, I would say. Um, but this kind of these first eighteen verses really set the whole scene for really what's going to happen. Um, really paints some very interesting things. It's it's not um, a narrative of it's like it's not the story. It's definitely this kind of higher level kind of mm-hmm. exploration of the nature of being, almost really. Why don't you read out maybe the those first. Uh, 18 verses. Let's have all of them. (laughs) In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Amen. Amen. That's good. That's There's a lot in there. There like, is a lot in there. Lots to unpack. But what this helpfully does is kind of set a whole bunch of themes which are going to come out. And um, I found it quite helpful to think about uh, John writing the new thing and constantly kind of reiterating something which was old and something which is understood by God's people and making it new. So uh, straight up in verse one, it's like a new Genesis, a new creation. In the beginning. Like, yeah, familiar words. Like it's, again, maybe indicative of the disciple that Jesus loved that he would feel confident (laughs) enough to start his gospel with the first words of Genesis. Like, just want you to know, like Moses did all right, but I'm going to have another crack at it. Yeah. So he's introducing a new a new creation. As soon as you hear those words, you should be thinking, hey, creation, 
this is a new creation. There's something happening in this moment because there's something new going on. Um, it's very interesting in verse uh, in verse twelve. He there's like a new election. So uh, ex- explain election for us in the general sense. Election is the Lord's choosing of His people for His purpose and His plans. And in the Old Testament, we see that, that election is very national. It is yeah, to Abraham, the people right? yeah. of Israel, the, yeah, individual patriarchs that grew into the nation of Israel and his descendants like the stars in the sky. Um, and then now we have this lovely verse that says, yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So mm-hmm. the election hmm. expands. Yeah, new election. New, yeah, new election. There's the new exodus. So he's taking people out. And this will kind of bear out as we move forward. Um, but because the the exodus and the tabernacle or temple are all kind of just basically intertwined in the, the narrative, as soon as it says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that Greek word there for dwelt means actually tabernacled. So a tent was set up and dwelt in, um, in the midst of the people. And so as soon as the author is using those words, all of a sudden we get exodus, we get the temple, all of that suddenly comes into sharp focus because hang on, this is a, this is a loaded term. This is like a technical term here. And so we get the author writing about the new exodus, the new movement of God's chosen people from somewhere to somewhere else. And we get the new temple, which again features quite heavily throughout the whole gospel. Um, and what we don't get here, but the author also writes, is there's a new moment, uh, basically like Pentecost. There's a new Pentecost, um, which happens differently in John's gospel. Not yep. like in the book of Acts that Luke records. Uh, but there's a, there's a new law, there's a new commandment, there's all these new things that happen in John's gospel. And so those themes are very strong the whole way through. Man, there's a lot I want to say about everything you just said there. You said so much. I know. That, that was really good. Um, Pick your top three. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. I, uh, Old Testament. I love, I love the Old you Testament. You do. Uh, <laughs> you said that so nicely. Thank you. Um, yeah, the, the new tabernacle... Um, and also, I, I thought it was very interesting how um, the law is referred to as grace. Yes. Um, in fact, we you, have are you reading from NIV? Yeah, we have received grace in place of grace already given. Yeah, there's a few things in yeah. your version that were quite different ones. I, yeah. In my ESV, it says he just has given us grace upon grace. Right, okay. Which is, yeah, yeah very interesting. Well, anyway, um, I loved yes. what you were saying about the tabernacle because and how you pulled out that that Greek word for for dwelling and tabernacling. Um, Yeah, it's very important, especially for any Jewish or Hebrew readers of this book, the tabernacle, as they understood it was, um, it was more of a a temporary dwelling place for the presence than it was Mm. a permanent place because it was um, a portable tent or construction that was um, designed to escort the Israelites from Sinai to the promised land. Um, um, And we see actually all throughout the macro structure of John's gospel, a very similar new exodus where Jesus essentially walks from exile like the Israelites were in Egypt to the promised land. Mm. So Jesus begins his ministry all the way out in um, Judea. And, mm. um, in the, the, edges, in the, the fringes edges, of society. Exactly, yeah. the fringes of society. Um, and you see a very interesting progression throughout the book of John where he you know, the author construction. So he gradually walks, I think he reaches Jerusalem about chapter 10, chapter 11, and it's all the whole way through. It's a gradual progression mm. towards Jesus um, getting to the temple and um, to the cross. So the idea of um, 
the tabernacle being that escorting dwelling presence yeah. um, through the wilderness narrative Exodus um, and New Exodus you see very clearly throughout the book of John. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating how he does that. Uh, and it kind of raises the one of the ways you can look at uh the structure of John's gospel. Again, we've talked about this in the past. When anytime you look at structure of a, of a book of the Bible, there's a as many you know, people who've got an opinion. They've probably all written a book on it and why theirs is the right way. You can also look at the the gospel of John uh, around the Jewish feasts that are present throughout. Mm, yeah. So, like I said, there's three Passovers. There's also the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths uh, in the middle of it, which is a really significant moment, um, which is a feast that's all connected with water. Is actually one of the big features. I was say, of that. Also, a big theme in John too. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, and so and then water being indicative of the spirit. John's Gospels uh, presentation of the Holy Spirit is very different to the Synoptics as well. It's a very specific. I remember writing a paper on a, <laughs> a Johannine pneumatology, which is nice. a very clever way of saying the Holy Spirit in John. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can't just use plain English when you're writing academic yeah. papers. Everyone gets you know, like, oh, you don't know anything. Um, but so the, all of these themes are in there. I think they're really important because as if we pay attention to the setup, it helps us understand why the author has selected what they have, why they've presented it the way they have, um, which kind of helps us understand why we should believe in Jesus. He's doing the, all these new things. Um, yeah, which, and then when we get to the passion narrative, the book of glory, the, the instigation of the new is really, really obvious. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole book's not about completely doing away with the old it's about jesus's consummation and fulfillment um and like it said of that grace already given to us and now we've received a new grace on top of it jesus in so many ways fulfills um the picture of the jewish law and and jewish history and stuff like that and we see that throughout the gradual progression of the book Mm. um a couple of other things i thought were really interesting in this prologue um I love that just after the election verse, verse 13, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of God. John's birth story in this lovely little non-human birth story where Jesus descends from heaven um, in a, an ethereal, mystical way, yeah. um, that is that election is like transferred to us where mm-hmm. we receive a new birth and we'll see when we get to Nicodemus who doesn't quite understand that yeah. being born again. Um, but we receive a new a new birth, not of natural descent or human decision, and we take on that nature as well um, by the blood of Jesus. And the one last thing yes, I wanted to talk about. It's good. Come on. Um, a bit different to everything we've talked about actually is um, the effect that this prologue would have had on the Greek audience um, mm. or in the Greek time, Greco-Roman time that um, uh, John was writing. Um, and it's that word logos. So yeah. um, you mentioned before um, it had been used in Jewish circles to refer to scripture. Mm. It's also used extensively through Greek philosophy um, which was blossoming up to this point, um, especially in the 20 years or 30 years before um, the gospel was written. Um, and that word logos was referred to like a divine knowledge or a secret knowledge or um, in the word, it's you know literally translated uh, in Greek philosophy. And it was used in so many of the mystery religions, which became really popular in Greek and Roman society, where you had to know like the little bit of secret information yes. to be to be saved and to be part of the inner circle. Um, and then John's kind of turning it on his head and saying, mm. you know what, this secret information is Jesus. He's walking with us and yeah, among secrets us. Out. <laughs> secrets out. He's yeah. available yeah. to the whole world. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, and, and that actually raises something which we haven't touched on yet too, which is that dating, the, the timing of when the authorship was. Because, again, there's lots of questions about that and this plays kind of – it's a bit of a chicken and egg kind of scenario here because, as you were just saying, you know, those mystery religions that grew up, um, which were prevalent throughout the Roman Empire in the kind of particularly the second century, like the 100 to 200s was huge. Like they were everywhere and, and a lot of Paul's writing is writing into the early experiences of that too. So yeah. in Ephesus, it was huge. Uh, in Corinth, it was a really big deal as well and yeah. right throughout the Roman Empire. Um, so one of the arguments for the gospel being written late, as in after 100 AD, like well into, you know, well after Jesus's life was that um, the rise of one of these specific mystery religions called Gnosticism, which believed in many things, but one of the main tenets was this secret knowledge, yeah. uh, gnosis being knowledge in Greek. And so you have to have this knowledge of God so that you could be part of God's people. Um, and so one of the arguments is that this is combating an early form of Gnosticism Um or it could be that Gnosticism rose out of a culture that had things like what John was writing. So it's hard to tell which came first because yeah. should Gnosticism actually have been around at this point, it was still very, um, very new. It was very kind of um, unformed at that point. Um, it's also because it's dealing with the temple, there's a wrestle with, yeah. is this actually after AD 70 when the Romans finally destroyed the Jewish temple and the Jewish form of worship? It, it could be, and that could be a context. So it could be written closer to 70 AD instead of 100 to 110 AD. It's There's a lot of wrestles in all of this stuff. Yeah. I because there's like, such a temple Exactly. Yeah. I feel like the, I was going to say the temple, I feel like is usually the deciding factor for people mm. and it's, I, th- I think from my past reading, most scholars usually pick around 90 AD. Yeah, they just U- split Usually the <laughs> before 100, yeah. I think. But yes. like you said, yeah, maybe in early Gnosticism, but probably definitely after the fall of the temple, mm. which does put it a little bit after the synoptics. Yeah, and it, not too long. Not too long, but yeah. definitely the latest of the four mm. Gospels, yeah. But then again... None of them explicitly mentioned except for Matthew, the destruction of the temple. Exactly. So it could even be pre. You think that would be a pretty big deal. So, again, doesn't help. But also it does help kind of speak to the wider understanding. Again, also helps us understand that the audience may have been Greek Jews, like Greek-born but Jewish believers who are becoming Christians because it's pretty heavy in – the the symbolism of Judaism, so all of the festivals, like it doesn't really take a lot of time to explain them. Uh, most of the Aramaic terms have been translated into Greek, and so it might be a bit more of a like de- that might determine some of the audience as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's actually really hard to work out a lot of this stuff. The scholars all tend to have their own opinion and just ambiguity. tell you what they think. Yeah, yeah. ambiguity. Uh, that's what we talked about, right? Yeah. Uh, anything else from the prologue that really stands out for you? Obviously, that very first verse, uh, there's a world of conjecture about it. There's, in fact, <laughs> whole religions and religious sects that are based on interpretations and translations of um, of that first verse, um, which is probably a discussion for another day and another yeah. time. But, <laughs> yeah, um, I did – one of my subjects was doing um, – uh, exegesis of John's gospel in Greek and we got to translate it all and wrestle with the translation and then actually interpret and understand it. And it was very interesting doing that, that first prologue. It was a, there's a lot of work to do in there when you're translating the Greek. It's easy to read the English, but when you have to actually translate it from Greek to English, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, But it's amazing to just dig in. Yeah. Well, 
I was going to say similar story, but it's it's quite different. But <laughs> same, uh, same, just different. just last night, I was as part of my thesis. I was reading um, like a little excursus on one, literally two words in Ezekiel eleven sixteen, little sanctuary, and there have been multiple doctorates, PhDs, theses devoted to whether it's a little sanctuary or a sanctuary in some for a little while. And it's like, oh, because it's size yeah, or time, whether it's temporal or whether yeah. it's um, degree. And there's been those just two Hebrew words. It's so ambiguous that, yeah, it's so contentious and it's two words. Great. So, <laughs> so if you're ever worried about struggle. coming up with a topic for a PhD, just you, pick two, any two words in the Bible. and You'll be, be right. able to find something that, that is still under contention. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that uh, sets us up to understand kind of the next big sweep of John's gospel, which uh, is the book of the signs, which starts in chapter 1, verse 19. And so we'll look at that in just a moment. Okay, so as we start the second section of the fourth gospel, um, we get these seven signs. Um, and as I was reading, uh, there's disagreement on what the seven signs are, and there might actually even be eight, uh, <gasps> which is also wonderfully ambiguous and also wonderfully symbolic. Um, as you said before, seven is often indicative in Scripture of the perfection or the fullness of God, so the seven spirits of God that are in both the Old and New Testament, the seven lampstands, the seven churches. All of these things, the, the the sevenfold structure of the candles, the candlesticks, the Literally menorah. All of Revelation, you will find seven. Yes, yeah. <laughs> seven's everywhere. Um, so then, but eight is often symbolic of the new beginning, of a new start. Yeah. And what do we talk about with John? The new, he's talking about new mm-hmm. things. So it kind of makes sense that there's seven, but there's actually eight. Yeah. <laughs> Sneaky eight. But like, it's, yeah. it's almost like it's uh, the Bible version of Where's Wally? John's Gospel. Like there's so many hidden things in there that if you take the time to look, you go, oh, wow, I just found this other thing. Oh, and I found this other thing. Oh, yeah. So anyway, okay. we'll get to that. Uh, first sign we have is turning water into wine. First big one, straight out of the gate. Everyone knows it. You've heard famous. it Famous. Yes, yeah. exactly right. Many jokes around it. Yeah. Um, I won't tell any of them now, <laughs> but just Google them. Uh, so that's the first big sign, water into wine. The second sign is um, in chapter four, the healing of the man at the pool, uh, water involved. Interesting. Keep that in mind. Uh, The third one is healing the crippled man in chapter five. Um, The fourth one is feeding the 5,000 in chapter six, which we'll we'll spend a little bit of time in because there's something interesting around that chapter six space. Also in chapter six is the walking on the water. Uh, Then the sixth sign, healing the blind man, uh, the man who's born blind which is a long section. It's actually, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and then the seventh sign is the raising of Lazarus. Yeah. So that's in chapter 11. And then you have your... Well, we'll, we'll hold on. We'll hold on to that. Because okay. the, the, the new and eighth one are all in the next section. Oh, so true, hold true. On. You'll have to hang out to the uh, I know, end of the no episode, spoilers. guys. Yeah. If you want to know how it ends, you'll have to read the book. Uh, but partnered with those uh, seven statements, which uh, don't... Natural, like they don't you know, kind of line up perfectly. They're in various spots, uh, kind of offset from that. But the seven I am statements are: Jesus says, "I am the bread of life," chapter six. Six is all about bread. <laughs> Second one is, "I'm the light of the world," in chapter eight. Um, chapter ten's got two. It's hogging them. Uh, "I'm the door of the sheep," 
uh, and I am the good shepherd. Um, the next one is I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. In chapter 14, uh, that's where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which is in the next section, I know, but that's right. And the seventh I am statement is I am the true vine uh, in chapter 15. And these are all marked in the Greek with this particular arrangement of words, which is ego amy, or ego amy, as you have to pronounce it, um, which is kind of a redundant phrase. You can just say, ego means I, and amy means I am. Mm. So it's kind of redundant. You don't need to have both. It's a bit of a literary kind of technique. It's a literary motif. And so when we find this kind of these two words together, two words, I'm sure there's been a PhD written on these two words. I'm absolutely certain I guarantee there is. It. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when we find these two words, it's actually introducing a construction which is trying to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus is making this important statement here. So we get the seven I am's and we get the seven signs and connected to those seven signs are seven discourses where Jesus explains the sign. But um, let's jump back to the first one, water into wine. Well, tell, tell oh, what do you, what just do you bef- have to say? What's just your before that, I think... We, briefly talk about the in general the significance of the signs and the yeah, i yeah, am please. statements um but you will obviously see that significance in each individual one um but they're definitely intimately tied to the purpose of the gospel which was mm. to display jesus christ and his divinity um one and the same as yahweh um it will be very obvious for you hopefully that the i am statements refer to is the i am um, it's, it's from Exodus, it, from right? Exodus. Yeah. It is very deliberate that it is, um, calling on the name of the Jewish mm. God, Yahweh, um, who refer- revealed his name to Moses in Exodus as I am what I am, Yahweh. Yeah. Um, so Jesus making the claim, if you thought he was a human walking around saying, I am, you'd be like, Oh, you can't say that, yeah. mate. That is well, hence why people name. get very upset with Jesus because exactly. they thought he was just a human walking around going, uh, just in case you didn't know I'm God. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and it's got a bit of added significance because um, um, the divine name, I am what I am, there's heaps of um, scholarship and stuff on it. But the the consensus is that um, it implies a similar to um, the discussion we had in the tabernacle. It, it, it implies a presence being with the people um, mm. in, in the name. Um, and there's a lot of scholarship around it. But so when Jesus says that, he's saying, I am and I'm like I'm here as well. Yeah. So it's it's pretty important that he self-identifies with God and also here on the earth, mm. not just in the heavens. Yeah, which is again, it's quite subtle really. Like yeah. you have to be a, a kind of a bit of a student of the whole of the the scriptures to understand that this is a fairly loaded statement. Well, it's a very loaded statement. It's a very um Contentious statement to yeah, make exactly. in front of people who yeah. style themselves as the teachers and the scribes of the law. Yeah, so, they were outraged. Yeah, uh, which which again sets up this str- strong contrast which yeah. you see throughout John's gospel. Yeah, and so anything else you want to say on that? Uh, no, but on the signs. Yes. So yes, Let's go to the signs. <laughs> the signs. Um, you'll notice in John, I don't think you find the word miracle. Well, at the very least, they're not called the seven miracles. No. It is a different. Greek word. I'm not sure what the words are. I think it's semeon is the sign. There you go. Um, Joe does know it because he's a genius, but (laughs) the word used is the seven signs, not the seven miracles, um, with the implication being that the signs are meant to point you to something. They're meant to point you to a greater truth um, that is like, you know, hidden within the sign itself. And we'll probably see them as we go through the seven signs. But those truths that the signs point to uh, are related to Jesus's divinity um, 
and often tied to the action he performs in the sign. Um, and we'll see that with the water to wine one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we have the very first sign in chapter two. It is water to wine. You've probably heard the story before. Um, Jesus's mother. Well, they're all at a wedding. Yeah. They run out of with wine. With the disciples. Yeah, with the disciples. Great time. Run out of wine. Jesus's mother says, "We have no wine." And Jesus goes, "Woman, Again, why are you talking to me?" <laughs> tone is not adequately expressed in text. We were having, I was having this discussion in the office the other day. Like. I said to them, you know, I'd love to have been there when Jesus like said things like that or when he rebuked the Pharisees. Cause like we get this, like if, if Paul says, speak the truth in love, yeah, that's a reflection of who Jesus is. So like there's anger and then there's like being overly aggressive. Like how does he express it that invites people to respond to him? Like I'd love to have watched his body language and heard his tone of voice when yeah, he exactly. had some of these conversations. Yeah. Like there's this like, oh, because woman isn't necessarily a derogatory term. No, it's actually not context at all. At all. It's, it's not at all. a term yeah. of endearment. <laughs> yeah. It's actually like, oh, mom. Yeah. Like, oh, come on. Like, yeah. why are you asking me to do this? Yeah. But it's no surprise that she asked because uh, in the kind of in between the end of the prologue and this first sign, there's two kind of little, there's, there's actually three scenes, but the two most significant scenes are the the revelation of who Jesus is by John the Baptist, which plays into again, this temple and Jewish festival motif, which is uh, in chapter 1, verse 29, says the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mm. Boom, Passover. That's the Passover concept there, the Lamb of God who takes away sins. Uh, So this is the new exodus happening right now. Straight after that, Jesus uh, is calling the first disciples and there's this beautiful moment where he has a prophetic kind of vision of Nathaniel under a tree. And so it's no surprise because he's got his disciples with him at this wedding. His mother's there with him. His cousin John has just declared over him, you are the lamb of God. You're the new Passover lamb. His disciples are now responding to that and they've seen God work through him already. So there's no surprise that this might be one of those miracle working guys that travel around the Levant area Mm -hmm. in the ancient world. And the sign of the wedding, the water into wine reflects that perfectly. What you just said that the fact that Jesus is just been declared by John the Baptist as the new Passover lamb um, is, is is exactly what the sign in the wedding reveals. So the, the the nice little thing that Jesus gets the servants to do, he gets them fill the jars with water and now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Um, and then it comes out and, you know, they drink it and they're like, this is the best wine we've ever tasted. Um, of course. Most commentators it's very unbaptist it is it is it's not it's not very good is it? i'm sure it was fine grape juice yeah, yeah. <laughs> um most commentators will point you to the fact that um the water of the jars has been turned into the the wine the mm-hmm. blood of jesus so where the water of the jars um is is meant to symbolize the law ritual cleansing yep. purifying um if you want to read through any of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you it's will find there. a lot of regulations <laughs> regarding ritual purity and cleansing, of which a lot of it was bathing um, and cleansing yourself before you can approach God and be in his presence or, or even atone for your sins for that matter. Um, so the fact that Jesus is taking that ritual water for cleansing um, and then you know, turning it into wine, which we'll see later, and we still practice today in communion as symbol of the blood of his body, um, he's becoming the new purity, the new ritual mm. cleansing, the new Passover lamb. He's usurping the role that water once took um, and he's making it his own by his sacrifice. Mm. 
So the second sign is the healing of the official's son, which I got wrong at the start. So I'm revising myself right now. Uh, the crippled man is the man at the pool. The, the uh, official's son who is ill is the second sign. So apologies. There's only seven to remember, Joe. I know. Sure. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, was actually just a little, there's a little Easter egg there. So if someone realized that I was wrong at the top, you get the prize. And I the mean, prize I, is I didn't. So. <laughs> a well done, good and faithful reader of John's gospel. Um, so he, yes, he heals the official's son. That happens again. Uh, interesting that it does involve. Uh, it happened yesterday at the seventh hour. It's like just little Easter eggs from John in there. Mm-hmm. This is seven again. So that's the second sign. It says quite clearly in chapter four, verse fifty-four. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Um, we get the healing of the man at the pool, which is in Jerusalem. So this is the confusing part. So we've already been yeah. to Jerusalem a couple of times. Uh, and it's like it's a little confusing about where he's up to. So it's um, all out of order. <laughs> it's totally out of order. So he cleanses the temple in chapter two, which is a familiar scene. So he's in Jerusalem there just after he's at the mm. wedding in Cana. But then when he does the next thing, it's he's just gone from Judea to Galilee. Yeah. So it's backwards and forwards everywhere. He meets with Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, who's probably in Jerusalem because he's there for the Passover. So it's all backwards and forwards. So chapter five, we get. Um, the healing of the man at the pool, which is in Jerusalem, uh, the pool, the sheep gate pool, the pool Bethesda um, with the five colonnades. Uh, again, early church just loved this. Oregon and his allegories just thought any number, it just went to town and it, it was great. Uh, my, one of my pet peeves anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, that man is healed. We keep walking through. Jesus then um, feeds the 5,000, which is a pretty big deal. So chapter 6. This is where I want to jump in because this is where we get also our first I am statement. Ooh, with the fourth sign. Because we get really chapter six is this very interesting presentation of the giving of the new manna, the new bread. So this is the new Moses coming in. So we kind of get this presentation of Jesus as the new prophet, as the new leader, as the new Moses, because he's obviously leading the Exodus. Big deal. He's the temple guy. Moses was the temple, the tabernacle guy, you know, he did yeah. all of that. So if we give the, the giving of the manna, which was to preserve the people through the Exodus, Jesus is in the middle of the Exodus giving the new manna uh, because he starts to feed the 5,000. Off the back of the feeding of the 5,000, he has his statement uh, in verse 35. Um, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He says this in the context of, the new manner, verse 32, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They say to him, sir, give us this bread always. He says, I am the bread. I'm right here. Yeah. yeah. So Jesus is, um, this whole thing is around food, around bread, and about resetting what food and bread looks like. And it leads into, for me, one of the most intense conversations, <laughs> um, which for me is kind of, we talked in the previous Gospels about there being like a pivot point or a turning point or a, or a key moment in a Gospel. Um, you know, in, in Mark's Gospel, it's the end of chapter 8, kind of it's the two halves of the Gospel. Mm. And for me, this is where the disciples hear this whole discourse, which we'll uh, unpack a little bit more later on. But they say uh, there's this mass exodus for a specific reason, for a, a hilarious misunderstanding. Um, and everyone leaves and it says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And there's this beautiful statement, again, on the lips of Peter uh, with this revelation of who Jesus is, and it kind of shifts. Like that's the, the kind of the, the, the true pivot point because from this point forward, Jesus now starts to be really explicit in his ministry. It leads us into the, the book of glory, the, sign, the, the last supper moment where there's this mm. huge revelation of who he is. So, yeah, I always find that a really interesting and important moment. Yeah. Yeah, the the whole feeding of the 5,000 and the um, the bread from heaven is a really beautiful picture. Um, and it's one of those ones, like you said, where it gets a bit more explicit, even though they don't get it at the time. It's nice to read those verses where it says, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I mean, to us, that's like, you know, I get it. We've had 2,000 years of getting (laughs) our head around this. Exactly. Just like, you know, God rained down manna, which literally fell from the sky to earth and gave life and sustenance to the Israelites in the wilderness while they were in exile. So Jesus has come down from heaven to a people still in exile, um, and he's become life and sustenance to them. He's the bread of life. Mm. Um, And like you said, they're they're pretty angry about that. So, (laughs) Which for me raises this really interesting, uh, this is a little excursus for you, uh, an interesting conversation which I have regularly with my friends who are Old Testament scholars. Um, and it's the constant debate slash tension or pendulum swing, whichever metaphor you want to use, um, of how much should we be looking for Jesus in the Old Testament? Oh, Joe, I, I know. you need a whole episode on that. I know, I, but I, it's just, I find like this is a really fascinating one because for Jesus, there's no problem. Uh, for, for the New Testament authors, they regularly like, look, yeah. Jesus says, you, see, you, you saw God in the Old Testament scriptures every day. Well, they're talking about me. So for me, that's, that's a really good kind of invitation to look for these things. And when you get to this passage about the bread, it's, he's like, it came down from heaven. That's me. You don't get it. So like, you know, is this a prototype? Is it a foreshadowing? Is it a, a, an early indication of Jesus coming? Is the manner an expression of Christ, a, a, a sign to let us know that he would come? Mm-hmm. Or is he just taking the opportunity to kind of take that sign and appropriate it to himself? Which again is another interesting conversation, but uh, trust me, I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing never, oh, no, typology doing, yeah. for my thesis. So <laughs> I have read hours upon hours of scholarly debates on whether we should look at typology prefigured or read it back into the Old Testament. And yeah, there's a lot of conjecture about it. Yes, good times. Good, good times. Another, another episode. <laughs> yes, definitely. Awesome. Okay, so let's keep moving forward because there's uh, there's still even more to talk about here. Uh, the walking on the water happens in the midst of that conversation. So he, he multiplies the bread and the fish, uh, which is consistent across all four Gospels. Uh, he walks on the water in between, and then we get the bread of life conversation. The next thing we see is, uh, well, this is what I noticed. It starts to slow down. So we get much longer conversations from Jesus. So we get, um, yeah, all of chapter six is about bread. We get the temple discourse. So all of chapter seven is actually Jesus talking at the temple, all in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles and all the stuff that's going on. Uh, and then we get to chapter eight with the woman caught in adultery, which some people think doesn't belong in there. Um, yeah, my Bible's all in a nice little italics font. Yeah, yeah, mine too. It's got a little got double brackets around it. Yeah. Um, and then we get to Jesus. Basically, the next sign is him healing the man who's born blind, which is quite a, it's a whole chapter in chapter nine that deals with this one incident. And so we, it's interesting to see what takes up real estate in what is essentially a fixed amount of space that they could write in. So this is a really significant 
sign as well of Jesus healing the man born blind, mm. which again, he's just talked about being the light of the world. Yeah. And this man is blind and the light of the world comes to the blind man and now the blind man isn't blind anymore. The yeah. light has come to him. It's like we've read the prologue. Yep. And it happened with the feeding of the 5,000 as well, the sign and the I am statement linked nicely together. Yeah. So that leads us then into uh, the conversation about poor old, well, the conversation about being the good shepherd, which contains a few I am statements uh, and one of my all-time favorite and helpful verses, which is John 10, 10, which is the thief comes to steal, steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said that I have come, you may have life and have it abundantly because I am the good shepherd. And he starts to unpack what that good shepherd is. Uh, obviously, one of the key sources for our picture of Jesus as this pastoral figure of leading the sheep, of protecting the flock. We have it in Luke's gospel as well and a few other times, you know, leaving the 99 sheep to go and find the one that's gone astray. But it's very strong in in John's gospel here. Uh, We come to the next sign, however, which is the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, which is another really interesting moment and sign which leads into an I am statement. Because Jesus is actually really impacted by this, right? Like it's a really intense thing. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, they're very close to him. Jesus is deeply moved when he hears of Lazarus's death. Um, And Jesus kind of says, you know, our friend, this is hilarious in hindsight, not in the moment. (laughs) Chapter 11, verse 11. um, After saying these things, and he's just been unpacking a few different things, he says to them, our friend Lazarus (laughs) has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought um, that he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Like, I don't know, like that's really for me quite sobering. Like he knew that he was going to die. He knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. He could have gone and healed him because he healed plenty of sick people before they died. Yeah. But he says to the disciples quite explicitly, I want you, it's better that he's actually died because now you're going to believe. Yeah. It's like, whoo. And guess what's really about intense to happen for Lazarus. Well. Yeah, oh. yeah, it's like, yes. Well, that's, again, typology, <laughs> yeah. foreshadowing. Yeah. Jesus is about to do the same thing on a grand yeah. scale. Yeah. And, um, of course, here you get that I am statement tied again to the miracle or the sign that takes place when mm. Jesus says in verse 25 to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replies. Um, and then Lazarus is awake again. Well, just before that. Just before that, yeah. Mary gets Peter's line at the end of verse 27. Oh, yeah, it is. Because you, you are the Messiah. Yeah. Mary says to him, I believe that you are the Christ, the yeah. Son of God, who is coming into the world, which we, yeah. we hear Peter say somewhere else. Like, I don't know if that Mary said it too or whether John just didn't like Peter and so gave it to Mary instead. I was going to say, so, Peter gets mm-hmm. all the credit for saying that. And he you never does. hear about poor Mary who says no, it too. Exactly <laughs> right. uh, so then Jesus raises Lazarus, which is the actual sign, which he's been yeah. alluding to which takes us then to really the end of this first section. So we've had all of the signs. We've had five of the seven I am statements. And Jesus is about to kind of transition into the very final stage of his ministry. So before we jump into the last section, 
the thing that I wanted to talk about, which I didn't yet, <laughs> which is really interesting, is um, there's this kind of almost amusing oddity in John's gospel where people don't understand Jesus and they take his words overly literally. Like they think, and this is helpful for John because he's talking with so many levels of meaning that I can understand why we might struggle because the people that Jesus is talking to go, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Can you, can you repeat that? (laughs) The best one. Let's start. The first one is in chapter three, uh, verses three to eight. Um, You read read it. Yeah, I've got it. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And then Jesus goes on to explain, you don't get this, mate. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. To be fair, it's a pretty complicated explanation. Exactly right. Like if you didn't, like again, we have the benefit of 2000 years of people talking about born again Christians. Yeah. Nicodemus is like, I'm sorry, he said born again. We can at least reread it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. I, and uh, again, uh, this show is rated PG, so we won't go too explicitly into it. But Nicodemus is like, so I just want to clarify the process of birth. Yeah. <laughs> so The anatomy doesn't quite the, line the, up here. <laughs> I'm a man and my mother is probably shorter than me because genetically most children are taller than their parents. Uh that doesn't work. Yeah. I'm sorry, the physics are not going to work out. And Jesus is like, okay, just to put it down before you hurt yourself. Um, yeah. Which leads then into the most famous passage in John's gospel and possibly one of the most famous in scripture, which is John 3.16, which is right off the back of this. Um, and this is kind of part of the revelation to Nicodemus off the back of his misunderstanding. But it is the first of a whole bunch of people taking Jesus's phrases overly literally and not understanding. The next one is in chapter four, verse 10 to 15. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? (laughs) So this is the woman at the well, another famous kind of, scene in John's gospel, which only happens in John's gospel, but he's saying, I'm the living water. And she's like, you don't have a bucket. <laughs> the well's really deep though, Jesus. <laughs> like, yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> so again, he, and he takes the time to unpack it. She then has a revelation of Jesus, which is great. Uh, so the next one's in, uh, still in chapter four, verse 31 to uh, 38. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. <laughs> but he said to them, I have food to eat that you no- you know nothing about. This one's actually quite funny. Yeah. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? <laughs> <laughs> My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Um, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sow and reaper may be glad together. Makes me wonder if, in the moment, they said, "Do we have to go and get the wheat from the field for the bread?" <laughs> like I'm so confused. Yeah. It's like uh, in I think it's in Mark's Gospel in chapter eight is like they're in the boat talking about the yeah. yeast of the Pharisees and the, the the yeast of Herod, and they're like, "Is it because we didn't bring lunch?" Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, the next one is in uh, chapter six, verse forty-seven to fifty-eight. Um, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. 
But the but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. <laughs> Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my, f- my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. <laughs> I love John 6.60 is the best verse, I think, for me in the Bible. Honestly. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, <laughs> who can listen to it? <laughs> like... This is this is a, a, such an interesting moment because Jesus doesn't explain it. He doesn't actually explain it at all. He just says, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And people leave. Yep. Like this is not a church growth strategy. I'm offending you and I'm not explaining it. I'm not teaching it. I'm not speaking into it. I'm not going, okay, everyone just calm down. Now, now it's a metaphor, but it's actually, so you're going to have bread and juice because we're Baptists or wine if you're not. Um, but I'm actually going to die and my blood's going to be poured out and it's going to wash away it's the whole thing. I'm like the lamb as well. This is a whole interconnected series of events and pictures and it's going to be okay. Don't be offended. I want to explain this to you so that you can, he's like, no, nope. You don't like no. it? Off you go. See you later. And he, talk, yeah. he turns to the final 12 that he's got and says, are you guys out too? Because <laughs> it doesn't seem to make any indication that he's upset about this. Exactly. It's, like, it's just the most staggering moment. I think for me uh, as a pastor, I'm like, you want to make every opportunity for everyone to learn. But sometimes what God does in someone's life is offensive. And that's actually his prerogative. Yeah, right exactly. You know, like I can't be offensive as a pastor and as a leader, but if Jesus is doing something offensive, you got to wrestle that out with him. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he tells them, all right, you can have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then the Jews are like, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And instead of like explaining the metaphor, yeah. he follows it up with, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. It's, yeah, like, it's like, oh, you're going to add the blood in now, yeah. <laughs> which is actually, again, reading Leviticus, big no-no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could not eat not food that chance. had the blood in it. No. Like the blood is life. It belongs to the Lord. If you do that, big time no-no, yeah. you're out. And so, so he's it's not only- it worse. He's <laughs> exactly right. He could, have like, he could have kind of put that fire out, but yeah. he just threw fuel on it. Yeah. Like, oh, my like, goodness. I know we're harsh on the religious leaders sometimes, but no wonder these guys left. Like, Oh, uh, yeah. Like, that's yeah. pretty offensive. Yeah. That's, yeah. Okay, the next one's in chapter 7, verse 33. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? It's like game hide and seek. <laughs> like, will, will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? I don't quite get it. It's like, I'm out. Like, Where's he, where is he going? <laughs> so, again, it doesn't take a lot of time to explain stuff. The next one's in chapter 8, verse 21 to 30. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, ask will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? <laughs> it's like, it's like, no, nah, like, you don't get it. <laughs> they just take everything really literally. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost amusing. Um, and then uh, in verse 31, he says the same thing or similar thing. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Like, I'm not a slave. <laughs> you can't set me free. Uh, the next one's in chapter 8, verse 56. Chapter 8's full of these. Your father Abraham again rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? <laughs> So good. Uh, and the last one is chapter 11, verse 11 to 15, which we kind of, we we, we touched on earlier, which is... And Lazarus is falling asleep, asleep and like, going no, to wake sorry, him up. He's dead. <laughs> it's like, okay. I hate to break it to you guys. He's not just asleep. <laughs> so I, I think not only is it kind of amusing for us to look at this stuff, but also for the people reading it, they've been like, this is, and drawing them into the story, going, oh, there's layers of meaning here which we're not picking up straight away, which clearly the yeah. people at the time, again, which plays into one of the theories of the genre, which is it was almost a stylized kind of Greek tragedy or play. It's way too long for the form, but there's this kind of almost like this chorus of ensemble people who kind of ask this stupid and obvious question which sets up yeah, the teaching yeah. moment. So it's like, I'm the bread of life, but you're not made of bread. Ah, it's because it means something else. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. So it's, yeah. it's almost comical in some ways, but it's also like a technique, which is the people ask the dumb question so that the listeners can enter into the conversation. Yeah. And obviously it's a good reminder for us when we extend it to ourselves as readers that if you're reading through the Gospel of John and not questioning anything and thinking you understand everything at a first read, it might be better to to go back and have a look for those extra layers of meaning because um, if the point's being made that it's not all literal and that there's stuff hidden underneath um, that are new revelations and new truths, um, then it's probably worth exploring them and they probably might take a little while um, to wean out of the text. And a lot of it looks like going back to the Old Testament and finding out, yeah. oh, that's what they used for ritual cleansing. Oh, and they didn't, they couldn't have blood on the altar and um, so, yeah, you, it's good to go back and look for that extra meaning. Amazing. Well, there's lots in that. There's a whole lot more. If you do some uh, a little bit of the legwork yourself, you might find out something. Uh, but that kind of wraps up that, and that leads us nicely into this kind of final scene, our last two I Am statements, and the what's called the, the Book of Glory or the, the Passion Narrative. Okay, so we find ourselves coming to the kind of the next to last segment, but the last big movement. Um, and as it kind of comes into chapter 13, which is where it officially starts, the tone is definitely shifting. So uh, again, we talked about it slowing down. The the kind of the rate of events is getting slower, which means there's more time spent on each event. Uh, we're basically going to have from chapter 13 to chapter the end of chapter 17, effectively just around the one night. Yeah. And just about one conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. But just before that, as it, as it kind of ramps into that, there's this last moment where Jesus is talking um, with his disciples where some Greek people come to seek him out and then he starts to talk about, it's, it's kind of similar to the Gethsemane moment really. It says um, in verse 27 of chapter 12, Jesus is talking, Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, for, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. Uh, the crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. If you left it there, before you get to verse 33, the the amount of ambiguity in that is we know in hindsight that Jesus um, was actually ascended back to the Father and is now seated on the throne. He is lifted up in the sense that he is magnified, glorified. He is promoted. He is the one who is above other things. Uh, But John makes it clear in this point. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, which they wouldn't have necessarily understood that at all. And this is one of the beautiful uh, kind of ambiguities of John that I always am really deeply moved by is that when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. And that's in the crucifixion, but Mm. it's also in the glorification and in the same moment those things happen, that he's glorified while he's crucified, which again is the ambiguity that John brings because the crucifixion is a humiliation, not a glorification. Uh, Mm -hmm. And yet in God's eyes, that is the moment of glory. That is the moment of promotion. And just on that, very similarly around John 3.16, it's either verse 15 or 17 when it says, I think it's 15, um, and like the... The, the snake that was lifted up in the desert yes. so the Son of Man will be lifted up. It's the exact same picture where you get, they don't understand what's going on. They're like, no. yeah, Moses lifted up a snake to heal people in mm. the desert. Same thing, Jesus is being lifted up in an act of crucifixion yeah. um, to re- redeem the situation. Yeah, which And just total little side journey, probably would have been a cross-shaped pole because yes, they hung exactly. a snake on it and yeah. snakes don't tend to hang real well on no. uh, just a straight, <laughs> a straight stick. stick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it needed a cross piece probably. Yeah, answer, exactly. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, it was another whole conversation which we'll go into another time. <laughs> but so we get to chapter um, 13 which kicks us into really this last kind of moment, this last – it's the Last Supper, what we would call the Last Supper, which is this meal that he's sharing together with his disciples uh, at the, the night before his crucifixion. And it's really one long conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. It says in, in chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, and then it goes on. So we get this long kind of conversation that starts with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, interestingly, including Judas's feet. So Judas is, is still present. He hasn't betrayed Jesus at this point. And Jesus washes their feet and goes through this conversation about, if I've cleansed you, you're clean. You know, you don't have to find other ways of being clean. Uh, the world will kind of make you dirty, basically, but I will make you clean. Uh, and interestingly, Jesus commands them to do it for each other because he's done it for them. It says in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Which um, is interesting. Uh, Our friend, Pastor Scott McKinnon, in his humble opinion, he says this is actually another commandment of Jesus, along with baptism and communion. It's pretty clear. He says you should wash each other's feet. It's right there. We do not do (laughs) as a ordinance or as a sacrament or as a, a remembrance, uh, as, a, as an ordinance, yeah. Uh, interesting that it's in there and that he says to do it. Mm, I've also um, seen the foot washing described as like a commissioning as well where mm. um, lots of times, especially in Paul's writing as well, the, the gospel is described in terms of the feet, you yeah. know, as um, the sandals and um, that – putting on shoes or anything to do with the feet is like a commissioning to go. So in a way, Jesus is about to leave. Straight out of leave. desire as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good one. Um, 
uh, Jesus is about to leave, washes his disciples' feet all with the same water. Um, and, and he does say like no messenger is greater than the one who sent him in the passage as well. Yeah, true. He does, um, yeah. With the idea being, you know, I'm about to go. This is yours now. Mm. Here's my communion. I'm washing your feet. You're ready for service. Do it for each other as well. But then, like you said, it's also interesting that he does wash Judas's feet yeah. as well. But mm. I guess he's commissioning him to continue the yeah. or <laughs> what's it about still, to take or place. Or is it still an option at that point? Yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but it does bring back that water theme, which we haven't touched on, but uh, it comes up quite a lot. And yeah. water in Scripture uh, in some places is often uh, an indicator or an allusion to the movement of the Holy Spirit, to the uh, the – the, the work of God, like, you know, we're talking about being born of water and being born of the Spirit. Yep. Um, Jesus, you know, says, come and drink from me, which we've already had that conversation from chapter 4. So the water theme continues on here. Jesus uses it now to mark his disciples. They go through the conversation about the betrayal, which is Jesus's big moment, which is Judas's big moment to eat from the bowl and that whole thing. And then we get to a new commandment, which kind of continues John's theme of the new thing. And the new commandment is to love one another, just as Jesus has loved us. So we are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, which is verse 34 and 35 of chapter 13. So it's this this beautiful moment, this uh, threefold kind of uh, instruction to love. Notice yep. that? Yep. Love one another. As I've loved you, love one another. People will know your disciples by your love for one another. Followed directly up by Jesus uh, telling Peter that he will deny Jesus three times, uh, which is then interestingly countered by Jesus's three questions to Peter in chapter 21. Do you love me, Peter? Three times. Reinstate him so, three times. Yep, yep. Very good. Uh, then we get to our sixth and second last uh, I am statement which is in chapter 14. So Jesus starts then after this kind of conversation and after after the meal, after the denial, all of this stuff, in the scene is set by John. Now Jesus starts to open up about what's coming. And so we get this kind of long discourse that includes this I am, um, which is I am the way, the truth, and the life in verse 6 of chapter 14. And it's a whole conversation about where he's going. It's a whole conversation about the Holy Spirit coming, this this new move of God, the one who will come and, and declare to you what is mine. Um, at the very start, the new form of election was the people being called the children of God, right? Yeah. At this moment where Jesus is about to fulfill that, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So we get this beautiful kind of, um, kind of uh, synergy, this kind of balance, this Jesus's going to do it in the prologue and now he's doing it in person and then we're going to have the way that he does it through the crucifixion and resurrection in just a moment. Yeah. Uh, massive unpacking of who the Holy Spirit is and what his role will be in the life of the believer, yeah. which is why we get the sense of the new Pentecost because it's the apologetic essentially for the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Yeah. Um, and it's not especially significant, but just a little side note. I think it's, it is interesting how Judas is absent for this bit of the conversation of the meal, like just mm. before Jesus predicts Peter's denial and before chapter 14, um, Jesus gives Judas the bread and what you're about to do, do it quickly. And then Judas leaves and heads out um, to go mm. obviously round up the authorities. And I think it's interesting that he misses the bit where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the yeah. life. And like, well, I know he's had heaps of opportunities <laughs> before that to, to hear these kind of words, but um, when this idea of election and being born again and, 
um, being a child of God comes up, Judas is mm. remarkably absent and it's like he's made the choice which child he is and he's a child of the world or yeah. the devil's entered him at this point. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. One of the things that um, I didn't pick up on, but this actually comes back to a very early part of this conversation uh, about how we wrestle with uh, these Jesus' exact words um, is what happens when you see kind of, um, as one commentator calls it, the seams. Mm. Sometimes the seams are showing because we look back at Scripture and we can kind of, in our mind's eye, imagine that this perfectly bound uh, gold-edged book is lowered down from heaven into our hands and God says, <laughs> here is the Bible, take it, read. Um, but the reality is that people wrote it and then some people edited it and made mistakes it, and yeah. made mistakes and in the fourth gospel there's some of these things shown i mean it, it the classic example is the fact that moses who you know according to scripture wrote the first five books of the bible records his records his own death, death yeah. which is either amazingly prophetic or problematic yeah <laughs> And so yeah. someone had to add that in. Mm-hmm. Um, we know from reading like you know, in Kings, there's other books where they draw on some of that information, uh, the books of the kings of Israel and the books yep. of the kings of Judah and other books, the books of has it, um, Joshua, I think is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm probably remembering the, the, the name the, wrong. The but there's all sorts, yeah, the well, yeah. Kings, you know, all yeah. of these kind of extra things that get brought in. Yeah. Well, someone has compiled this fourth gospel together because yeah. uh, I've, this is so interesting. The, at the Last Supper, uh, it says um, in verse 30 of chapter 14, I will no longer talk much with you for the rule of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. I am the true vine. <laughs> it's like, hang on. That sounds like the moment that yeah. the conversation ended and he's going out to the garden where the betrayal will happen. But now we get another three chapters just kind of in here. It's like, oh, I shouldn't have put that bit in there. Yeah, it's like yeah. I, I put the rise bit slightly too early. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like it's one of the seams showing like it's like, oh, whoops, that shouldn't have been there yet. Um, but then it does launch us into the last of our I am statements, yeah. which is I am the true yeah. vine. And just before we get to that, yes. I, the, on the seams, it, it's quite funny because um, – it's not like in Microsoft Word where you can just, you know, control Z yeah, yeah, or, you yeah. know, backspace like, oh, I probably shouldn't have put the come now, Copy let us leave it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's um, the, when they're writing on a manuscript and um, every drop of ink is precious and you have no way to really erase what you've done. If you've made a mistake, you pretty much just, just got to go keep it. going. So if you cut yeah. out 15, 16, and 17, this is how it reads. Rise, let us go from here. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. Yeah, which makes sense. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So we kind of get this nice three-chapter inclusio here uh, that kind of unpacks, but some really significant things. Some very famous passages, yeah. Yeah, and um, one of the most important passages for us as believers today because Jesus now starts to unpack the, the way that life and ministry and fruitfulness happens, which is out of abiding with him. Uh, one of the key passages around what abiding, of what intimacy, of what union with Christ looks like is in chapter 15. Uh, and he says so much here about his love for his disciples, about how the world will treat them, about what's coming and what it's going to look like, about the Holy Spirit's role as we navigate what it's like to be disciples in this world. That comes in in chapter 16. Um, his encouragement to the believers who are going to witness his crucifixion and how they should navigate that and really that his death is not the end 
Uh, his death is his victory and his resurrection will be his vindication. But then we get to chapter 17, which is his high priestly prayer. That's what it's called in most Bibles quite often. Yeah. Uh, and this is really important for us because this is where Jesus actually prays for each of us. Yeah. And it says when, in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life. And he starts to unpack that. And then in verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you are father in me and I in you. And so this is the, uh, in some versions says, all those who are far off. Uh, so this is where he includes us, all those who will believe in me through the word of his yeah. disciples. And that's us. It's like the Matthew 28 Great Commission. Make disciples and command them to do all that I've told you. This is all those who will be blessed through you, who will believe because of you. I'm praying for you right now. And so he starts to pray through this, which is beautiful. So I think, you know, for, for me, I don't spend enough time in this chapter. I should spend more time in this chapter. I read it every kind of month or so, but this is where Jesus is actually specifically praying for me. And so that, that's a pretty yeah, big deal. Exactly. Uh, really amazing verse. But this, as it ends, as I read, you know, chapter 18, verse 1, that kind of closes off the, the Last Supper, this final great discourse of the I am statements, and leads us into the specific passion events, the, the crucifixion events, which start in chapter 18. So we come to the final section that we'll address, which is the the crucifixion into the epilogue, uh, which is, again, quite short now. The action kind of speeds up uh, and we find the betrayal, the arrest of Jesus, uh, the betrayal of Judas, where he comes in and kisses him. Uh, we have here recorded the name of the, the high servant, the high priest's servant whose ear is cut off, Malchus. Uh, we have here... This is the only gospel where it's recorded that Peter was the one who cut off the ear of the servant. Again, maybe John having a little crack at Peter. Um, he knows that in, I think it's Matthew's gospel, Jesus corrects the person who did it and said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And John's like, I just want everyone to know for the record that it was Peter. <laughs> it wasn't me. And he was the guy that it happened to, poor Malchus. I know him. Um, but as, as I was talking with someone about this recently, I said it was probably because Peter wasn't good with the sword to begin with. Yeah. Because he's a fisherman. Probably, not probably a aiming for the head or the neck. He's trying to cut his head off, and the guy probably like ducked and turned his head to one side. And as he leant over, it swung around and just took the ear clean off. Um, which otherwise makes the healing a, easier because yeah. otherwise Jesus is like I could put his head back on. Yeah. It's a pretty um, precise action, otherwise. So yeah, it's yes, gotta be an accident. Yeah. <laughs> he's not that good a swordsman, I think. Yeah. Um, but then Jesus is taken in uh to the high priests. He's come he has to come before the Jewish leadership. At this point in history, the Jewish leadership don't have permission to put anyone to death, so they have to get uh, permission from the Romans. The yep. Romans actually have to do it at that point. Mm -hmm. And this uh, brings us kind of eventually uh, to our last, and as I alluded to at the start, eighth I am statement. The mystical eighth I am. The mystical eighth. Yeah. Which uh, would you like to reveal the mystical eighth? Yeah, it's verse four, right? Verse four and five. Uh, yep. And it uh, says it again in six. All right. So chapter 18, verse four, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? 
Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. Yes, which think, oh, that's not it. That's just saying I'm the guy you're looking for. Except that in the Greek, it's the same phrase, ego amy. Yeah. That's it. That's what it says, I am. Yeah. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, I am. So this is the kind of at the point of his glorification, that's the restatement of the I am. The ultimate definitive one, yeah. Yeah, which is amazing. So I am Jesus, yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the context of the other seven statements, it's pretty amazing as well because um, like, like we said, the seven I am statements correspond um, perhaps to the seven days of creation mm-hmm. or all that good stuff. I think we've actually talked about this on the podcast yep. before, but then obviously a potential eighth I am statement when Jesus is facing his death represents an eighth day of creation mm. or a new creation, mm. which, as we said, John is especially concerned with that new creation. He is. Interestingly, interestingly too, uh, as we get through, so Jesus is saying, I am at his arrest. Uh, Jesus is then brought before the leadership. Peter then kicks into his cycle of denial. And in the midst of his cycle of denial, uh, in verse 25, it's it's. It's almost a little bit um, filmic at this point because it's cutting backwards and forwards between Jesus and Peter and Jesus and Peter. So he's before Caiaphas, then Simon Peter is in the courtyard denying Christ. It cuts back to the high priest questioning Jesus again, back to Peter, this backwards and forwards. In verse uh, 25, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said to him, you also um, are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and he said, I am not. not, yeah. So, or just in case you were in, under any illusions that Jesus was human and that Peter might be more than he said he was, no, Peter is definitely not. Yeah. Um, but interesting kind of contrast. Yeah. Then again, we get in the denial, Peter is not in the glorification and the acceptance. Jesus is. Um, Jesus comes before Pilate, and there's this very interesting discourse around truth and where truth comes from and what truth is ultimately all about. Um, Pilate asking the simple question, what is truth? Which, again, uh, talk to any apologist, they're going to have a lovely time converse, uh, conversing <laughs> with you about this passage. Yep. But then we get Jesus handed over to be crucified and the crucifixion happens. Um, and it's a very, it's, it's well, it's a beautiful but, you know, again, when you read the crucifixion moment, it's it's heart-wrenching, it's it's sobering, it's um, powerful, it's laden with so much imagery from the Old Testament. We have this now as the, the third Passover with the, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who is sacrificed. Um, we get a lot of fulfillment of scripture in here. We get the, the description above the cross. We get the declaration, uh, Jesus dies and is buried, um, fulfilling all of the customs. And then we get to chapter 20 which is the resurrection, which is um, a different version of the resurrection. But in the same way that we had the seven I am's with an eighth, we have the seven signs with an eighth, which uh, some commentators say that if you want seven, you leave out the walking in the water or you have your seven with it, but then we get number eight, which is the resurrection, which is the ultimate sign that ultimately kind of speaks to Jesus's divinity, his, his victory, his vindication, that he is the Messiah. He's the one who will save the people who will take away the sins of the world, which happens right in the beginning. You know? yeah. uh, we have that, the, the, the bookend of it here, which is Jesus's resurrection. Yeah. It's almost as if like that eighth sign, everyone's, any readers would be going like, there's seven, that's nice and perfect. Done. And then the eighth one comes along, you're like, 
hang on, like this it's, changes everything. I know it's almost <laughs> as if like Jesus is stepping out of the conventional like system they used. Like they were so used to the seven being the perfect and seven days of creation, and suddenly this is Jesus in his mm. absolute fullness. We can't even confine him to the number seven. Uh, here he is, um, just to make a point, even resurrecting as the eighth yeah. sign. It's pretty incredible. Which is also cool. It's kind of like, um, uh, you know, people love to talk about, well, we live in Acts chapter 29. Yeah, Acts yeah. 29. Because, like, we continue on the work of the Acts church. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, but it's also kind of like when it hits the restart and we get the eighth AM and the eighth kind of sign, it's started again. And so now we live in the space of the restart. And so the space for signs and for, for the truth of who Jesus is is wide open. It's not completed in that it's, it is completed because we got to seven, but it's now restarted or reinitiated, and now we live in that space of the reinitiation, or as we said at the start, we live in the new because that's what new John is trying to Absolutely. communicate to us, yep. which is really powerful. Uh, and we get some really kind of interesting moments post-resurrection. So remember Mark's gospel, we get nothing. Uh, in Jesus' uh, Jesus's words in Matthew's gospel, we get this really missional heart where after the resurrection he sends. In Luke's gospel, we jump basically straight into Pentecost and we get yep. Jesus leaving after teaching. In John's gospel, we have this kind of Easter Sunday morning scene where there's a foot race because the women actually find Jesus resurrected in the garden and don't recognize him, which is a, a theme in the, the last bit of John's gospel yeah. where um, Mary is in the tomb. She's weeping because they've taken the body's gone. She thinks that they've taken his body away. Uh, and she thinks that Jesus is the gardener, which is hilarious. Misunderstanding and yeah. ambiguity again. As you say, another one of those ambiguities. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and then the gardener asks her why she's sad and she explains and goes, uh, well, I'm the one you're looking for, which is wonderful. And then um, she goes, it's this, this is a, a really interesting moment in verse 17, which I always thought is fascinating. Jesus says, don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the father, um, but go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and to your father um, to go to your God and to my God. And Mary, it's Mary Magdalene at this point. Uh, she goes and tells them, which is a fascinating thing because normally you would not let a woman in the ancient world be yeah. the bearer of the revelation. And so this is a beautiful yes. kind of, and again, such an important revelation. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's almost like what you just mentioned. It's like restarting with that new creation. If the, in the old Testament, the woman couldn't be the bearer of the, um, of the, of the revelation suddenly on the, in the most important recreating revelation mm. of all, it's transferred to all people, yeah. all creeds, all tribes, all tongues and stuff like that. Um, I missed the part where we talked about uh, the foot race. It's earlier in chapter 20. Um, it says, um, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early and it was saw that it was uh, stone had been taken away. It was empty. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and told them his body's gone. We don't know where he's gone. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> So, like, so necessary. Guys, <laughs> calm down. A little bit of competition. Uh, but then um, as you alluded to earlier, there is also this moment with Thomas uh, who has this experience of you know, having to put his faith in the risen Christ. Yeah. Thomas is a nice little contrast to Mary in mm. the garden um, in that Mary also doesn't, at first recognize that it's Jesus, but upon having that revelation revealed to her, it goes, 
you know, um, I think this, yeah, she cries out in Aramaic, Raboni. Mm. Um, and it's like a beautiful moment for them. And then Thomas and says, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Yeah. yeah it's I like, it's, it's, it's another one of those Peter statements, like yeah. you are the Christ almost. Um, and then Thomas, who was one of the 12, um, sees Jesus and, the other disciples say, again, contrast to what Mary said, we have seen the Lord. Mm. So they, like Mary Magdalene, I've seen the Lord. And then Thomas goes, uh, I don't know about that. Unless I see the nails and the marks. What like, was he doing? I what don't was know. he with the rest of them? It's it just it doesn't make much sense. Like you you see the other guys in a foot race to the tomb to, to see Jesus, and Thomas is just mm. like ambling around the streets. Maybe he's really upset, maybe his mm. life's devastated because of this, but given the benefit of the doubt. But he doesn't believe <laughs> until he goes through um the process of you know, putting his hand in the mm. side of Jesus, etc. And it is a beautiful picture because Jesus doesn't like discredit him, discredit him for his unbelief, but he is reinstated like similar to how Peter denies Jesus three times. And we'll see is reinstated in the next chapter. Mm. Um, Thomas for a different problem, not denying, but doubting is, is reinstated as well. Mm. Yeah. It is beautiful that Jesus doesn't condemn him, but he does say that it's great that you believe because you're seen, but how blessed are you when you believe? Yeah. I do like in, um, in verse 26, it says, Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I just read that. It's like, yeah, Jesus is there. But if Jesus walked through the walls, you would be freaking out. He's like, I think he's, he's not saying peace be with you. He's saying, everybody chill out. Yes, it's really me. Like, because if you walk through the wall, you'd not be like, Yeah, exactly. Oh, Jesus. He's like, what just happened? Yeah, exactly. What he's is like, going on? I was right. Jesus just walked through the walls again. No, it's all good. It's like the amount of times when God or an angel shows up and they say, the first thing they say is peace be with you. I don't think it's because like, yeah, it's the formal greeting of heaven. I think it's like trying to come. Everybody is freaking out right now. Exactly. So then we get, um, interestingly, Jesus appearing to seven disciples to finish the book. Uh, so after the kind of the mission statement of John's gospel, the fourth gospel, Jesus in chapter 21, this kind of postscript epilogue. Mm, none of one of those scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jesus appears to seven disciples. Nice. Uh, and we get to read it. Maybe we're the eighth disciple. There you go. That we are the new disciple. <laughs> Aren't there like eight, eight billion people on the earth at the yeah, moment? Each one of us has to respond. So. Yeah, no, I'm saying that there's eight <sighs> You know, I see what you said there. Yeah, it's no, only relevant for a while. For a moment, have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody slow down. Yeah, um, yeah. so Jesus is there. Uh, Thomas is uh, not there this time. Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee. Oh, Thomas is there. He's he's not going anywhere now. He's sticking around. Yeah. Um, seven of them there. They're going fishing and Jesus arrives. Uh, he calls them children, which is interesting. Mm. Uh, but there's this whole process now of where Jesus restores Peter. There's the conversation, which for many of us would be quite familiar, where um, after Peter's denial and Peter's shame, Jesus walks with him and says, do you love me, Peter? And he uses different sorts of love. Do you agape love me? Do you love me like you should love God? Yes. But then he says, do you love me like a brother? Do you love us? Love me like family? And he says, yes, of course I do. And there's this beautiful reinstatement as a disciple where he says, follow me. And then, of course, it finishes with Jesus and the beloved disciple yeah. um, where they have a conversation. Just has to, doesn't it? Yeah. Of course it does. And um, this is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things, who has written these things down. And we know that his testimony is true. 
Again, it finishes with if there's so if you wrote down everything, there wouldn't be enough books in all of the world to contain all of the stories. Um, beautiful hyperbole to finish the fourth gospel, the this kind of mystical gospel. Uh, of course, the ambiguity of it's great, and like for me, it's like reading the book of Acts where Jesus taught them for forty days concerning the kingdom, and I'm like. It's great that there was other signs. Did anyone write them down? Yeah. No. Did anyone take notes while Jesus yeah. was speaking? Um, but yeah, it's this kind of beautiful bookend which kind of ties it all up very neatly and very nicely. Uh, yes, either as a later edition or the, the seams showing in between. But yeah. um, it, got, it does definitely close the picture for the gospel about yeah. the disciples' true revelation and true engagement with um, with Jesus. Um, he breathes on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. Um the new Pentecost has come, the new creation has come, the new exodus has happened, it is completed in Jesus' life. The new temple has come, it's been torn down and it's been rebuilt in three days as he promised. Uh, it's all the new is there and it's this, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a very good ending. Definitely you could have read up to chapter 20 and been happy with the ending. At chapter 20, be like, yeah, that feels like a good place to end. And then you read chapter 21, it's like, oh, something a little bit extra. I'm, yeah. I'm okay with that. But it does it does give a nice little reinstatement of Peter, which I think is really important um, to the gospel. After, you know, God's finished doing all of those things you just mm. said, he comes back to just the one, the yeah. disciples, and, you know, they're part of the picture and the concern as well. So good. That's uh, that's the Gospel of John in an hour and forty-five minutes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> lots we, in there. We didn't even yeah. touch on all of it. So much, but uh, hopefully that's been very helpful for you. Hopefully it's intrigued you. It's maybe answered a few questions you have, but also challenged you to dig a little deeper, to read a little further. Um, I know for me, a uh, great commentary that I had was the two-volume set by uh, Craig Keener, which was super helpful. A uh, bunch of really good introductions, which will help you to get some grounding information on the Gospel of John. I particularly liked N.T. Wright and Mike Bird's uh, The New Testament in its context, I think it's called, their newish one. Um, but some great stuff. Even my study Bible, my ESV study Bible, some really helpful notes which help you kind of grapple with some of these kind of patterns and signs and kind of symbols that are hidden below the surface, which are sometimes hard to search out. But hopefully we've helped to kind of open your eyes. Um, the thing I didn't even mention, which is one of my favorite things in John's Gospel, is the woman at the well scene as a proposal scene in the Ooh. Jewish tradition. Start right episode. back in Genesis and look <laughs> at what happens at wells all the time. Yep. Anyway, I am familiar with a bit of that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Just throw that one out there for you. Uh, the, there may be uh, already a podcast around uh, in the back catalog if you go digging. Anyway, um, anything else to say before we wrap up, Senor Alex? Not really, but I, I am looking at a page in my Bible at the very end of John now, which is worth mentioning. It is one of those little harmony of the Gospels where it goes through and it has like the little table with all yes. the the different parallels between the Gospels. Go have a look in your Bible. You might have one. Otherwise, there'll be heaps of pictures on yeah. on Google or whatever. They're really nice if you're interested in looking at 
um, the different parallels of the stories and stuff in the Gospels. Very useful. Very helpful. Also shows you how much that John doesn't have in common with yeah, the rest of the Gospels. Yeah, there's a lot of white gaps there's in John's column. Gaps, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a few overlaps, but a lot of yeah. a lot of gaps. But yeah, hopefully that's helped you. Hopefully that's encouraged you. It's uh, warmed your heart and your affection for the Lord and his deep desire for us to be drawn in. Uh, John's Gospel always makes me think of the proverb, uh, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing and the glory of kings to search it out. Uh, I feel like that's that's how the fourth gospel is. It's an opportunity to search out the hidden things of God, which is why it was Oregon's spiritual gospel, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah, that guy. What a guy. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to this episode of Bible Streams. Thanks, Alex. I love having you come in and share your heart and your wisdom. Pleasure. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of Bible Streams for your listening pleasure. Thanks for listening to this River Life podcast. Make sure you subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest content. If this podcast has raised any questions for you, contact us via church at riverlifechurch.org.au or through Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.